Chief of FanboyPlanet.com. We are podcasting. This is this a first? Yeah. I got to think about this. We are all three in different locations in the state. Yep. Yes. Yeah, so I can't see anybody's facial reaction. This is gonna be weird. Um, I'm I didn't even shower. Right what? <laughs> I did. I showered. You're not even showered. No, I showered and shaved. All I clean knew. clothes. I just I just see the same quizzical expression on both of your faces because uh, that's the Skype image. Anyway, we're can on I July say 10. I, can, can I say I like screaming Nate while it's still in context? Yes, that was that was I like that one. That was that even was... out of context. I like screaming Nate. So uh, <laughs> July tenth, uh, we're podcasting at three sixteen. We are probably going to be done sometime around four thirty. Any news after that, we're not responsible for, but we still go. All right, and of course. Our man in Los Angeles, which I'm in Los Angeles, but in a different place. Our man in Los Angeles. I'm Dave Costa. And podcast producer. Rick Brett Snyder. That's right. So we got some comics news. Rick got a great uh, interview this week, or last week, 4th of July weekend, at Westercon. 67? Is that the right Western, number? Oh, yes, 67. Yes. It's very nostalgic. Uh, William Stout. And uh, so we're going to be playing that a little later in the podcast. Uh, a great uh, movie poster designer, graphic designer, longtime artist. I think he's dabbled in some comics, um, but uh, but really interesting. We got that. Uh, so we got cut down on the movies a little bit. Uh, big TV news. And, of course, we're, we're ramping up to Comic-Con. So let's... Uh, Let's take one outside of Comic-Con, though I have a feeling it's going to be uh, a push there. Um, this is one since uh, Rick was just at WesterCon being a sci-fi and fantasy-focused genre convention, fan uh, convention. There's two cons. That uh, Larry Niven's classic novel, Ringworld, is coming to manga. This is interesting to me again how uh, we're not seeing so many... Um, I don't know why. If we're doing it in the United States, why must we insist on making it manga? I think they tr- what they're trying to do is the the Japanese style of art. Um, yes. Even though they're not doing the back to front, right to left kind of panel and and uh, I know layout. I just noticed you called the graphic novel and I went to the website and they go, no, it's a stirring new manga. I'm like, I think I, manga I mean, may sell better it. too. What? Manga may be selling better than graphic novels too. Oh, there's probably more. We'll get back to that. Yes, probably more um, at Barnes and Noble. Let us talk about uh, things that are going to be happening during uh, Comic Con, which begins with again my favorite day of the year, Batman Day, which is what I will call my birthday from here on out. Um, since July 23rd 
is uh, Wednesday of Comic-Con, and DC is celebrating in shops all across the country with Batman Day, which brings us to that uh, there are uh, many shops offering, shall we call it counter-programming, to to Comic-Con if you could not go. And one of the things that uh, Rick pointed out to me today was that Barnes and Noble is throwing their hat in the ring, and it's a big hat. Um, that they're they're going to celebrate Batman Day, doing everything that the comic book stores are doing as well, uh, with uh, a commemorative edition of, and I think it's free. I'm not positive. While supplies last, but I think it's free. A commemorative reprint of Detective Comics number 27, which of course is the first appearance of the Batman. And uh, a limited supply of paper Batman masks, which actually, if you go to Fanboy Planet, you can see the image of because it was run, posted by Earth 2 Comics, which offers non-con for those in the Los Angeles area. Uh, that parties every night for people that go to their store. And Barnes & Noble is offering huge, uh, well, they're not specific yet, but uh, discounts on DC graphic novels. And Funko exclusives. That one's interesting to me. They're very specifically saying that they're they're going to have some. It, it seems to be. I could be misreading this, but they're going to have some of the uh, Comic Con exclusive Funko figures. Don't may tell may, Jason Salazar. They've been they have been really ramping up that area. There were at least three separate kiosks in different parts of the store with vinyl figures. Yeah, I have not are. been. I'm I'm thinking you asked me before we po- before the podcast started like when the last time I've been to Barnes and Noble and probably within the last 2 months, 3 months maybe, but I really didn't look too hard you, actually I, I I think ironically somewhat ironically bought a manga um Attack on Titan. Uh Oh, you watching really that? Look around at the at at what else was there, but I think I'm going to have to walk into one and and check it out. There's uh I'm in LA right now. There's one on Ventura that I think I can I can go into and see what are they doing because it really feels like it, we know that they're a troubled store. You know they keep talking about closings across the country, um, but but if Barnes and Noble becomes your local comic shop and your local fandom shop, and you were saying they've also got a lot of board games going right now, yeah, um, I don't think that's a bad thing at all. Yeah, their board game their board game selection was very progressive and new. I mean, there's a lot of the stuff that that people are actually going out and or, mail ordering because they can't get at local stores that were there. Um, yeah, and I suspect that Barnes and Noble has a reach in a lot of towns that aren't served by comic book shops. Yeah, so uh, I think this could be a very interesting development if we're right that that's what they're doing. But uh, which it seems to be. It's interesting that they're not doing anything with Marvel because Marvel seems to be doing exactly what they were doing in the 90s and saying, we're just going to play our own way. (laughs) They're not fans with with Barnes & Noble. They're not being all that helpful with Amazon either these days. Um, I think maybe they're going to, oh, my God. I just had this vision of they're going to reopen a Marvel store. Mm. Or just do Marvel distribution. Yeah, because that worked so well before. Well, now they'll do all of Marvel and Disney and Lucas. Well, they have all the product. Yeah, maybe they've learned. We should see. We shall, we shall see. Hey, did you say? Uh, did so, you say Attack on Titan? Have you watched the anime? I watched the first episode of the anime. It's a really interesting show. 
I mean, we should talk well, about that sometime. Well, they've been referring to it, and, and Nate, this will prick you up here. They've been referring it to, to it as Japan's Walking Dead. And that yeah, there are a lot of... I can Even see though that. I don't think it's the same show, you know, but it's interesting. Um, yeah, I, I just haven't had a chance to get back to it, but I know it's been been played very heavily on. Uh, I think uh, Netflix has it, Hulu Plus has it, and uh, Comcast's been running it. It's been getting so, a run on one of the one of the comics or the, or the uh, anime channels. Yeah, so one. yeah, I don't know who on on Comcast is, but I'm sure Crunchyroll has it. And what was that one? Uh, Doggone it that you reviewed a while back. But anyway. Oh, um, yeah. We, yeah, we so, blanked uh, on it last point, time, too. And I found it again, but, and I blanked. Yeah. yeah. But uh, the point we've got here is that uh, there's a lot to do if you can't make it to San Diego and you need to go to your comic shop, as everybody would on, on Wednesday, July 23rd anyway. But, uh, but it is officially Batman Day, the 75th birthday of Batman. And uh, I do want to push Earth 2 if you are in Los Angeles to go there. And it was a... You know, a good time had by all costume contests. There will be artists that, quite honestly, I know there are a lot of comics artists in LA that just go, you know what? I couldn't get a hotel room. It's a pain. Uh, you know, they so they stay in LA, and then your your comic shop's still open during Comic Con. So there might be some great uh, events at your local shop there. One that's going to include, and I'm not trying not to put Nate. Uh, asleep too soon is that uh, Titan Books uh, has announced that Saturday, July 26th will be Doctor Who Comics Day. So if you go on Wednesday, that's Batman Day. On Saturday, all across America will be Doctor Who Comics Day. And we'll see what that actually ties into at Comic Con on Saturday because they'll be there. Um, also, more details are going to come out. And I'm, I'm still not sure how I feel about this, but, but um, Rick, you know Alex Segura. Yep. who's now over at Archie, or back over at Archie. He's bounced back and forth between Archie and DC, and now he's back at at, uh, at Archie Comics. They're launching a new imprint, uh, and I think, I think more info is going to come out at Comic-Con called Dark Circle Comics, hmm. which is an offshoot of Red Circle. Yeah. Meaning that they're going to try to reposition yet again, which I think they were doing with the Fox for a while, uh, reposition their superhero characters more in line with what's going on in 2014, 2015. So, and my only problem is I'm, I'm a little leery of calling it dark circle, which means to me that it's like, oh, we're going to make it grim and gritty for the sake of making it grim and gritty. But I can also see that they've tried Red Circle many times, and it's just sort of petered out. So they had to do something with a name. So I don't know. We don't know creative teams or anything, but I'm, this would be the Shield, the Fly, the Fox, the Mighty Crusaders, uh, which have been a digital series for a while. Um, so they're revamping. Maybe and, it's just uh, slightly darker. You know, not, not grim and gritty, but just like uh, not not in the full sunlight. Right. It's not like a. Crimson Circle, let's call it that. Ooh, uh, that I like better. Yeah, but that would be good. And it, ooh, Crimson Circle Comics would be CCC. Yep. Uh, but uh, Alex Segura promises, though, that they are trying not to be the fifty-third book in the new fifty-two, <laughs> which I would appreciate because like forty-seven of those books are terrible. I just want two or three really good ones. So we shall see how what goes there. Um, there's also a rumor that Comic Co. Remember Comic Co. Rick? I, I don't know that. I don't know that uh, Nate would. Do you um, remember Comic Code? 
I do not. Yeah. Give me a they title. They published The Elementals. That was probably the biggest yes, book that yes, they had. Yes, yes, yes. Bill Willingham, who, of course, is the creator of Fables right now. And E-Man. Um, that it's been registered again as a website and a trademark um, by the brother of the guy who who ran the most recent version of it. So it's possible we might see uh, a Comic-Co announcement coming out of Comic-Con, which is fun to say, Comic-Co at Comic-Con. Um, and just, uh, we're going to stay away from a lot of controversy this week because we're trying to pass, but uh, Batgirl is getting a more manga fun uh, look with issue number 35 Gail Simone who was um, summarily dismissed early on in the run of the new 52 Batgirl has been summarily dismissed again uh, with issue 34 and number 35 Cameron Stewart, Brendan Fletcher and an artist named Babs Tarr who does a bit of manga-esque good girl art uh, is kind of making Barbara Gordon as Batgirl seem a lot more teen and with it and hip uh, at least according, according to the preview art that DC has released. So a whole new direction. Instead of being serious and grim, it's more fun, teen girl-oriented, perhaps. Um, so that's an interesting take. Um, which I think Batman Batman Eternal was kind of doing that. There was the one issue where the artist was very... Barbara was very wide-eyed and very... Um, it was very cartoony the whole the whole style with when El Gaucho showed up again. So we shall see. We move to this point of what's in the bag. Nate? What's in the bag? What's in the bag? Alright. <laughs> Nate, what's in your bag? Well, I'll start off this week with a personal favorite of mine, The Walking Dead number one twenty nine. Unsurprisingly, and this will be the moment that I'm going to say, by the way, listeners to the podcast, we are going to send Nate Costa. This one I can say officially because we have confirmation, right? We are officially going to send Nate Costa through the Walking Dead escape at Comic-Con in Petco Park with a GoPro. You need to explain a GoPro because not everybody knows. Well, all right. I assumed everybody did. A GoPro camera, which means we're going to strap a camera to Nate's forehead and he's going to fight off the zombies. So... Or and become I am looking one of them. forward to it. Yes, yes, and Jason Salazar will edit, and so we may have some very fun, uh, fun visuals out of that. And Nate commentary. We'll find out if he screams like I imagine I would if I were going <laughs> through it. That's why I'm sending Nate through. I'm fatter and slower. Nate's leaner and faster, so he's the right one for the job. So, anyway, Walking Dead 129. Walking Dead 129. That's right. Um... It's a good issue. A lot of crazy stuff going on. Carl's growing up. Rick is still Rick. I say that all the time. <laughs> oh, you mean Grimes. Okay. Yes, okay. Right. I'm ambidextrous. <laughs> We're just going to let that pause. Wonderful <laughs> non sequitur. Oh, yes. you're, the Rick you're talking about is not ambidextrous. Well, he is uh, now. Yes. He is now ambidextrous. Okay. He's got the hook arm. Ah. And he uses it well. Can he play a walk. banjo? He can play a banjo, yes. He okay. actually, there's a scene of him <laughs> playing the banjo. Okay. Great. No, he can't, I'm sure. It's a difference issue. Fantastic. 
<laughs> All right. So it continues being your favorite book. That's right. Yes. And which means that we've got a position, Nate, as well. The other piece of, of Comic-Con news that Image Expo is actually going to kick off Comic-Con at 2 p.m. on the Wednesday, which I do find frustrating with traffic patterns. It means we all have to leave earlier. So uh, that's cool. All right. Rick, what's in your bag? Okay, so the first thing out of my bag is uh, Spider-Man 2099. Okay, that goes off my stack. Fresh from Mine the, too. Fresh from the pages of uh, Amazing Spider-Man and before that, Superior Spider-Man. We have uh, Miguel uh, O'Hara, uh, who is uh, from 2099 but stranded in the 2014 backwater <laughs> New York. Who has cleverly changed his name. Yeah. Uh, what did he change? Omera. Omera. Yes. O'Hara. But the yes. uh, I I like the way the you know how Marvel lately has well the last year or so or a couple of years the first page is not a splash into the story typically it's a background of what's gone on before. Mm-hmm. So this one opens up and you just see his wrist coming out, and you have Lila the the construct holographic assistant that he has who is giving you the rundown and i think that and it's very it's very um this predates the halo video game with, can we call her skeets for short uh, we would call her cortana <laughs> yeah um but it's uh she looks uh and she doesn't look as she was originally supposed to look like marilyn monroe and now she's looking a little more like scarlett johansson um i'm okay with that yeah i know uh so this is uh it's peter david writing and will sliney s-l-i-n-e-y sliney who i uh, the art's really uh it's it's nice it's uh it's not terribly stylized it's very uh very clean Mm -hmm. um so i'm looking forward to this book i like the original run of uh, spider-man 2099 back in the day back david created him right i think so yeah, so, yeah so. one pick- of only a few of the 2099 line that didn't suck. Yeah, the Fantastic Four one was horrible, and so was the X Men was horrible, and the Rabbit Ghost was horrible. Ghost Rider was horrible. Punisher wasn't great. Hulk wasn't great. Yeah, Doom was interesting. Yeah, but there we go. Doom so, was alright. Yeah, Doom. No, Doom. I think was I. I actually like Doom better than I liked uh, Spider Man back then i think the funny thing though is he's still calling it spider-man 2099 when he's clearly going to be stuck in 2014 yeah it's it's kind of funny unless he eventually makes his way back to 2099 or spends 2099 on the weekends or i don't know (laughs) well i like the interest in it and i'd say i'm gonna agree not only did the lila opening page help it was like again i still have not gathered up my my superiors and read through everything i think um I got too busy just before... I, I think the, the last issue of Superior Spider-Man I read was the one in which Miguel showed up in 2014, or 2013 then. Yeah. And like Amazing Spider-Man as a reboot, I don't feel like I missed anything. I mean, like I feel like I'm caught up to speed, but uh, it was really easy to jump in, and I don't feel like, oh, like they spoiled anything in the past. Like I can still go back, and I'm going to enjoy Superior Spider-Man and no secrets have been given away. You know? it, it is a little bit weird that we are getting a ton of Spider-Man in New York now because we've got the Amazing Spider-Man, and then we've got uh, our Spider-Man from the Ultimate Universe, and now 2099. Um, 
But, oh, it's going to get bigger. Yeah. They've got Spider-Verse coming. That's right. Yeah. So um, I'm going to go alternative with mine. Um, spread. Do any of you guys pick up Spread? No. <laughs> no. Okay. It's a sci-fi horror. And the reason um, it was a it was a Steve Simonetti pick of the week. Like he slips things in my box. He says, you're probably going to want to talk about it. So um, it wasn't one I would have necessarily picked up. But it is noteworthy that the writer, uh, Justin Jordan, Boom Studios, just announced they're going to do three books with him, three titles. And he's the guy that um, that created, which I, I'll admit I didn't like the book, The Strange Case of Luther Strode. Oh, which, yeah image had a couple years ago which was mm -hmm. about the kid who was bullied who developed super strength superpowers I, people just loved it um and i honestly i i saw nothing in the first issue that made me want to buy a second but this despite the fact well i don't know i'm, I'm ambivalent about this but i have a feeling it's going to be big so um he's a fan favorite writer uh and he is a good writer this feels like if you took lone wolf and cub uh cable and hope uh, and you made Lone Wolf Wolverine uh, and then put it into the post-apocalyptic world of what happens after a horrific, uh, bloody, and semi-intelligent virus uh, has pretty much wiped out most of the population. How do we know it's um, intelligent? Does it take over people or something? Yeah, so they call it the... Um, it's really bloody. I mean, so this is... it. Some of it reminded me also of Saga because it's being narrated by the baby uh, mm -hmm. when she survived so you know it's all that and and, and uh you know what they're calling the stuff um it's uh not raiders it, it's that uh you, you oh the, they call the virus the spread but the sp spread can take any kind of form it wants to and it's very um it looks very lovecraftian so I'd say, you know, you might be intrigued, guys. And the art by Kyle Strom, who is, I love that they credit right up front. They're credited as co-creators. Um, you know, I think is really is really cool. Uh, it's, yeah, it's violent, it's bloody. It's if Saga was a horror film set in a zombie, the zombie apocalypse. But it's, but unlike Walking Dead, it's like, this has already happened. You know, it's been like a decade. And so this is what happens after society is trying to rebuild from it. Um, but it's pretty gross and, and pretty violent. And I think I might actually, unlike the thing, the Luther Strode book, I may uh, follow through and, and, and follow up with it because it uh, has a pretty good cliffhanger and uh, it's pretty well told. So Interesting. It sounds I'm like it might friend. be their counterplay to uh, all the... I'm sure all the interest that the strain is going to have coming up soon. That could TV. be too, but I mean, it's image. I don't know. You can say counterplay. You know, I feel like yeah. uh, this guy Justin Jordan is just—it's his idea. Now, maybe he was sparked off the strain. That's true. Which does that start this week? Yes, it does. Okay, I'm looking forward to that. So, okay. All but right. There's a, there's I have a... breaking news. What? I just got an email regarding the Monty Python Live parentheses mostly. Reunion show beamed to movie theaters across the United States. Oh, cool! On Sunday, yeah. Or oh, then it's not breaking. Never mind. Sorry. Forward that to me. I might go. <laughs> and maybe sold out locally because they because <laughs> it's sold out in forty seconds. Really? 
Wow. Yeah. The actual the actual show did. Well, the live show. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry I wasn't bringing comedy sports. Sent that one around uh, a while ago. So, <sighs> but I have my kids. I can't. I feel like I can't expose my children to uh, Monty Python uh, that day. So, we're gonna let them briefly with DVDs. So, what's next in your bag, Nate? Next in my bag is Daredevil number five. Okay. Uh, the last issue of Daredevil that came out was Daredevil 0.1, I believe, or point. I don't know what it was. But that was like the between the previous Daredevil and the current Daredevil. It said what happened before, on Daredevil's way to the West Coast. Now Daredevil number five is continuing the actual story that's going on in Daredevil 1 through 4. Of course, I haven't read it yet, so I can't tell you whether or not there's a... <laughs> Okay. Anything good in it, but I would assume it's good considering how Mark Wade has been nailing Daredevil for the last few years. Yes, yes, we can assume. All right, cool. Uh, what's in your bag next, Rick? Well, uh, making it sway into my top three in the bag for the third time is the final issue completing the series of The Royals Masters of War. And I have to say, this has been a really, really satisfying run. It's uh, noteworthy now because I have little doubt that they will put this into a graphic novel that I will probably buy for myself and recommend to other people. Mm -hmm. uh, again, the conceit here is that the royal families of houses of Japanese, German, uh, the, the United Kingdom, uh, that the the royal families all have superpowers and they just kept them under under wraps for the long time. But in during uh, the World War II, they broke out and uh, the UK broke silence and they went off to fight in the war, and which uh, brought the other ones out onto the field as well. Um, but some really, I mean, the, the plotting of this has really been cool. Uh, the characterization, I, I really love the way the Japanese people were handled, handled in, this, uh, in this issue particularly. Uh, they break with history. It is an alternate history, of course. Um, they're not trying to say that this all happened without uh, anyone knowing. And um, so the history is, is changed and different. Uh, this final issue has to, has follows up on the a big plot twist at the end of the fifth and has another huge one in it. So um, terrific art by uh, Simon Colby. And I highly recommend this. Well, since you... We should have a special award for if it makes it three uh, three times into... That's three <laughs> out of six. Three out of six issues have made it into my... Uh, well, you know, I mean, I, our purpose here is to, uh, you know, just like point out what are the things that are catching our attention. Uh, sometimes it's new, sometimes it's not, you know, and it's like we should have a special. Like maybe Vertigo could use that. It's a Vertigo book, right? It is a Vertigo book. Yes. So we can have like, you know, uh, Rick Brett Schneider's three-time triple award winners, winner which can go right there on its uh yeah be honest full quote on the back cover of the graphic novel which i will be buying because you have talked it up so well that uh i had not picked up the first issue when i went back alas it was gone so you know then it becomes i gotta get this as a trade paperback i have no i no doubt it will be a solid read um i'm gonna stick with world war ii as well because ah. um i got uh all new invaders number seven 
Such a great um, series. Great series and its original sin tie-in. And this is what I hope um, these other original sin tie-ins would do. I don't know if they're all going to do it. I'm still very leery of the Amazing Spider-Man one, actually, with that silk. Um, but this one goes back, and James Robinson um, uses it to tell a story of the invaders in World War II that deals with not a solid solution because, of course, you can't, but but deals with the morality of the decision to drop the the nuclear the atomic bomb on Japan, and uh, that that the, he does it instead of you know obviously that did happen they can't he's instead talking about how the government had a plan to use the combined powers of the invaders to do something very similar and the arguments there. And rather than derail the plot line of the book, he, it was a chance to introduce a new character who was the granddaughter of one of the original invaders. Uh, and uh, it's also a chance to move things forward with uh, this, you know, Captain America's out because things are going to be wacky with Captain America from now on. This really isn't an Invader series anymore. It's more the original Human Torch as a solo book disguised as the Invaders, and it's Jim Hammond, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., and it's really it's really good. I really and like the, the Hammond in, in S.H.I.E.L.D. stuff, the introduction to S.H.I.E.L.D. and all of it. Yeah, and then have you read, did you read, read this one yet, Rick? I haven't read the one that came out yesterday. I have not okay. read that one yet. I'm just going to say, it, again, and, and Robinson's one of those guys that he's just so good at leading up to, well, there's a twist you know, on the last page. Like, I couldn't drop it here. I'm going to have to read the next one, which is what I want a comic book to do for me. Maybe go, ah, oh, what's, what's going to happen next, you know? And um, there's also a reference to, I had no Toro is still alive in continuity? Yes. Where is he? Uh, he's having his appendix out. Is he okay? That's that's okay. No, that that was said in the book. That's yeah, awesome. Well, it's mentioned, but I just, uh, but I, I haven't. Seen oh wait a minute! No, Toro he was having his appendix out. That's why he wasn't in the original the original plot line in the uh, the fight with Hella. Oh, I must have missed that. Yeah. Then. Okay. And but yeah. I know he's been he's been in in, re, in current continuity. I can't remember where from. Is he young or old? Because I would love it if he was actually old. I think he's old. That's awesome. That's where it should be, yeah. All right, so what's next in your bag, Nate? I'm going to stick with Mr. James Robinson and say Fantastic Four number seven. Ooh. Uh, again, an original Sin tie-in. Last issue was original Sin tie-in. And I don't know how I feel overall about original Sin saying, oh, well, the reason this happened is because of this, not because of what you've believed for the last 50 years. Yeah, exactly. As a whole. But uh, last issue of Fantastic Four I actually just read recently, and this one I haven't read yet. But in the last one, has everybody read this one already, the number six? No. I read the last one, yeah. Yeah, number six, the last one. Oh. Uh, ben finds out Johnny did something to mess up him getting cured. So I'm only going to assume they're going to say what that is in this issue and not go on a completely different tangent and tell me a different story. 
Yeah. I will assume that as well. But uh, I, th- I feel like this James Robinson started off a little slow on Fantastic Four. But at this point, he's got my attention. Cool. Cool. I would. I will. I will agree. I've, I've been enjoying it. It's picked up. But I'm. I'm leery of this plot development. But we'll see. Right. Yeah. I want to see where it all goes and how they're going to not have any Fantastic Four for the next few years until the Fox rights go back to Marvel. <laughs> well, we shall see. <laughs> all right. So. Uh... <laughs> Rick, what's next in your bag? So my one, my ne- my last one is way out of left field for me, and I have to credit Justin Shang Chi for having asked about this book, and he asked me to buy it for him, and I did, and I haven't given it to him yet because I wanted to read it. <laughs> so, and it's called Death Vigil. Uh, it's by a Croatian uh, artist writer, uh, Stefan Sajic. And that's I'm 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 hoping I'm pronouncing it right. S T J E P A H A N. Image book. It's it's an image top cow production. Okay. And his last name is S E J I C. I I got the N and the H mixed up because they're using a really kind of weird Cyrillic uh, characters on the sure. cover of this. But sure. Death Vigil number one is it introduces uh, two characters of um actually three characters of what are being a pantheon of of these death vigil characters who protect life from necromancy and dark arts that they've all apparently died the leader uh is over a thousand years old the secondary guy's been there for 12 years and this is the story of the late the the latest one coming into uh into the fold you know, I I've never been a real top cow reader. Um, yeah. But this is really diverse, and the art is, the art is just splendid. Um, very, it's very dark and uh, and red and uh, kind of muted. Most of it takes place at night, except for there's like one scene in a coffee shop, which shows that this guy is not just limited to one color palette, like some some of what I felt uh, top cow has been. Um, but beyond the fact that it's a, it's a, it's a really cool story, great dialogue, and I'm really looking forward to the next issue and see where, where this goes. But the value of this book is incredible. It's a three ninety nine book, right? So what isn't three ninety nine these days? Um, yeah, but if I take Spider-Man 2099 and put it on my scale, it comes in at two ounces, that's for issue number one. I put this thing on my scale. It's three and a half ounces. It's close to 50 pages of full bleed. No no commercials, no no advertisements until the last page, last three pages mm-hmm. um, of art. The last cover and the three pages before that are, and one of them is for the next issue of Death Vigil, but there's a Witchblade and an Eyes for Infection. Uh, and Rise of the Magi and on the back. Uh, super impressed. And I, I I highly recommend this to anybody who's looking for something that... This is what I wish Justice League Dark had been. You're going to make me go to Earth 2 tomorrow and and look for this book. You will thank me later. 
No, I'm sure, you know, because you, I, and I think there was an image book last week, and I'm, and I'm, I'm blanking, but it felt like there was one that was three ninety nine, and again, that same extra pages, and that's one I don't mind paying three ninety nine if you make it worth my while. Yeah. And too many people are not, so I'm gonna go with the one unread book, which is Grayson number one. I've I've missed that one. I've got to go back and get it. And this is by Tim Seeley, who had done, I think, Hack and Slash. And um, there's a couple of alternative. He's done some, um, oh, I'm trying to think of it. There was a book in which Jesus came back and fought vampires in a post-apocalyptic world. Not Jesus Christ, Vampire Hunter, um, which is a very bad movie. But, Did I loan uh, you mine? I can't find mine. You know why? Because I think you loaned it to me and I found it. Okay. So I'll get it back to you. Cool. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> awkward. Uh, but I do know, uh, and I'll find it again. And um, anyway, it's uh, so I know he's done some uh, violent stuff, and now Grayson, with his uh, with himself unmasked and after Forever Evil, has become an, a spy, um, and he has uh, dyed his hair blonde, and it's very wavy. He's he's very attractive, um, and so it's a whole new thing for him. But really, um, I gotta say this: I'm 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 bothered by DC. Um, so I'm gonna use this as a springboard, not because I don't know about the quality of this. If you the idea of Dick Grayson as a secret agent is cool to you, good. It may be very good. I haven't read it yet. But again, here's a weird packaging thing, and I'd really want to take DC to task. On the back page is an ad for Warner Archives, okay? And the the things advertised are Beware the Batman now on Blu-ray. Batman the Brave and the Bold, complete first season now on Blu-ray. Legends of the Superheroes, now available. Batman Brave and the Bold, second season coming soon. Who's that aimed at? Who's yeah. going to be attracted by that? Nightwing fans. Uh, no, I mean children. Uh, you know what I'm getting at. And then all the house ads inside. So my son was reading something last week. And so as he's reading the DC comic, I can't remember which one it was. Uh, it might have been Scooby-Doo Team Up. It might have been that bad egregious thing here is there was a house ad for Grayson and it said you think you know you think you know Nightwing you don't know Dick haha hmm. uh, get it because his and name is a, Dick and there's okay and here's then uh, is a house ad for in here for Teen Titans for the new revival of the Teen Titans by Will Pfeiffer who wrote Dial H for Hero um, the the pre-New 52 version, and it says, it's Red Robin saying, they call us weapons, we call them tools. And then there's uh, that one's not as, Quinn. That, that one's not as blunt. The Joker's um, decapitated head on a plate saying she always gets her man. And for the new Deathstroke book, it says, keep calm and carry a big sword, which is a little less obvious a uh, compensation joke. Um, I'm just saying, there's a lot of... I know these books are rated T, but a lot of people aren't catching that. Do we have to be so um, junior high? I was going junior high, exactly. They and, must be junior high, because those are the readers they're trying to pull in. But I don't... You know, you did, you could... You know... They are teens. I, what? They are teens. Yeah, well, no, but it, it's just, they're hitting it so hard. Uh, and, and and I know that's what you're just trying to pull in, but I just thought, you know, 
there's no subtlety in that. No. And so I feel your pain. I do. I understand. And if I had a I have a son I had a son your your son's age, I'd be upset as well. Um, I don't think it was really Scooby Doo team up, but it was a book that I thought, okay, he's going to check it out, you know. And we and we talk about that, we, and we've talked about this in the podcast a lot. It's like if he sees stuff, if the storyline's too intense for him, he just goes, you know, this dad, this is too intense. I don't I don't want to read it anymore. And I go, great. But in this case, uh, and it might have been a Batman book, and and look, kids want to see want to read Batman, and right now, there, I don't think there is any kids Batman book. You know, I think he was. I think it was maybe even a bit of Batman Internal. So honestly, and uh, and we also had to talk about I I withheld the death of Damien from him, and then the house ad has you know he's back mostly mostly with the skull face Damien's skeleton in the yeah in yeah. the outfit. So um, yeah, so I'm just bothered, especially when you're gonna have Batman Day, and everybody's gonna go into comic book stores on July 23rd, and they're gonna get their Batman mask, and you know, and, and then it's gonna be all this stuff is just 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 not quite appropriate for the kid for the kids that are Batman fans, and so um, I'm not saying it has to be for everything, but you can just be a little subtler in your advertising. That's all I'm saying. Not to discount yeah. any of that, but my hope for this book, and I really, I'm going to still go out and pick it up, is that this will fill in the kind of international void in the Batman story that I was really enjoying in Batman Inc. Yeah, no, no, no. I hey, I'm saying the book itself might be great. Yeah, uh, and I'd like to hope that too. That's why. I, that's why I picked it up because I thought, well, this is something interesting. I know that notoriously, no, and this is not um, some slander here, Dan DiDio hates Dick Grayson, uh, <laughs> hates the concept, has tried to kill Nightwing off in several events. Um, and so this at least is something different, you know. Um, and I got to give credit, by the way, to Secret Origins. I think it was number three a couple weeks ago that told the way uh, the Tim Drake story. So I was like, oh, the Tim Drake story sort of makes sense, you know, in the way he was in Batman Eternal. So I'm like, okay, um, they're scrambling, but they're making things work after the fact. So I hope the Grayson's good, too. So um, and one side note I did not notice. Uh, I know you stopped buying, Rick, and so this is not my fourth. It's just a note. Uh, you didn't buy Justice League United? No. Or Justice League Canada? No. Okay. Um, the thing I just discovered this week is it's the same book, and they're just calling it variant. It's not just variant covers; it's variant titling. Wow! So depending on your cover, it's Justice League United or it's Justice League Canada, which I think is probably the stupidest marketing thing they could have possibly done, or the most brilliant. Well, because <laughs> did I, you double up? I, no, I did not. I recognized it was all the same characters, so I thought, oh, I thought. Until this week, I uh, my I bought the zero issue of Justice League Canada, and then the first two issues I got were Justice League United, and then I had Justice League Canada for number three, and I was looking around, uh, you know, on the shelf to see what I'd missed, and <laughs> I saw, hey, it's the same cover, only the background's white instead of red, and it's called Justice League United. So I hadn't doubled up, but there was a time in my life I might have. So man. Hey, a yeah. couple more tags. Uh, in the latest uh, issue of uh, Doc Savage from Dynamite, uh -huh. there's an advertisement for the 20th anniversary issue, reissuance of The Last Temptation. Yes. Which was a Neil Gaiman and Alice Cooper from 2005, I think. Um, yeah, originally published by Mar 
Did Marvel do it? No. Welcome to my nightmare. Um, What's the book called? The, the Last, Last Temptation. Temptation. It's a. It might have a dark horse. It was a I'm concept. It, it was a Cooper concept album that uh, Gaiman did a three issue. I think it was a uh, set of uh, comics about that were collected uh, into one hardcover. And so this is a reissuing uh, reissuing of the hardcover. Uh, right. Last Temptation by Neil Gaiman. Yep. Is from Dark Horse. No. Okay. Yeah. 1994. It was from 94, Marvel. That long ago. Okay. Dark Horse reprinted it in 2005. Uh, I have both okay. the Marvel version and the Dark Horse version, and I might have to get the Dynamite, uh, yeah. the the Dynamite hardcover, um, because they're also then launching an Alice Cooper series that Did, I think is going to spin off of. Were you an Alice Cooper fan? Uh, I enjoy him. I won't call myself a fan. Uh, I I I don't not like him. And I thought The Last Temptation was interesting because it was gaming. So we'll see if the uh, series is. Uh, we should also mention the next issue is the last issue of Doc Savage. Um, so, um Well, you know, I, I have mixed emotions about it, actually, because I kind of went I – was, I was reading this one going, they jumped around in time so much yeah. and finally brought it back around to what it was about. It's like uh, – that I, I get it. There's still a lot of room to tell stories with this new team, but it, it, it felt very. Um, this issue finally comes back around to something from the first issue, and as much as I enjoyed each individual story, I thought as a as a whole epic, it felt very. It feels very scattershot because I really wanted to see. I still really want to see what Chris Roberson would have done with the original Amazing Five. And in the annual, I thought Shannon Eric Denton did a really great job of yeah. doing a prequel to the Man of Bronze, um, and again with the Amazing Five, you know. So and and Pat Savage disappeared and came back, you know. So it, it's I, I just overall, I, and I'm sure this was Dynamite's approach and intention. I'll be right back. Yeah. Um. So I'm sure it was that you know this is this was editorial, but. Uh, you know, I, overall, it's a good story, but it's but again, it ended up doing what I felt DC had done, and I thought DC had done it wrong. You know, so um, I'm I'm not as happy with this as I as I was actually very happy with the annual that Shannon Eric Denton wrote. So there, there uh, have been issues that I've I've liked better than others. I've loved most of the covers. Oh, the covers are fantastic! I want the I want all of them as posters. Yeah, and. I I always want to give a book more than eight issues. I mean, how many, how many books are out there? Like 24, 36 issues, and you just go, why do they keep doing this crap? And sometimes they get better and sometimes they don't. And there's always a hope that they're going to even out, especially with a with a pulp character who's got a, you know, a history. Yeah, no, you know, and, and it does beg the question is, um, you know, is are we going to see, you know, if that, if that long-promised movie reboot happens... Um, you know, is there really an audience for it? You know, I know there's a small convention. Oh yeah. Um, you know, there's, uh, I just don't know that people are as into the man of bronze as we are. And, uh, I'm no, nobody is. (laughs) Thank you, Nate. Welcome back. (laughs) (laughs) And we started the thing, you know, we picked up that thing about maybe Chris Hemsworth in talks, a good choice. But after reading this again, I kind of went, I wanted to go back to the idea I think there's probably a good African-American actor who could play him. And I think they should do it. Didn't you talk The Rock at one point? 
I yeah, I thought The Rock would be would be interesting. Um, uh, I think he's too old um, for where I th- I suspect the script will be because when he, you took... he, he's too old to pick up a series, he might be able to do one with appropriate makeup and stuff. It's, yeah. not, it's not like his but knees I, have gone or anything. But I think you. But I think if you start with the like the Man of Bronze era, nineteen thirty two, thirty three, um, that he's got to be. He can't be older than thirty. And so that's you know I thought that's why I thought Hemsworth would be, be a good choice. But then as realizing that you know I, I do think that Lester Dent was trying to make um, Doc Savage be black without actually saying it because then nobody would have bought it in nineteen thirty two. Um, you know that that I think they should in 2014 just go ahead and and reposition uh, Doc Savage as as a, a black action hero. What about and, the? Um, I don't even. <laughs> never mind. <laughs> yeah, don't step into it. I yeah. So uh, let's continue into movies. Um, I shall say. Just uh, um, when we get to TV, uh, the black actor bit. I, I reminded me of something I, I, you really want to hear about if you don't know about it already. So when we okay. get to TV, and I have let's a piece take... of TV news. Well. Okay, so hold on to here. Let's then let's go through. Um, there uh, has been some weird, you know, a blaze going. Wait a minute, is Doomsday going to be in Batman v Superman: Dawn of Justice? And um, and there's no confirmation, but it's out there. Uh, and I want to say that I'm absolutely positive that if anybody had sat through the extras on the man of steel dvd which i did um it would be very clear that uh whether or not they're still doing it david goyer completely intended for doomsday to be the villain of man of steel 2 because they've there's a segment on translating kryptonian uh, which talks about doomsday so um, I'm going to throw our hat in the ring and say, let's say firmly, if Doomsday is not the villain of Batman v Superman, he is going to be the villain of Man of Steel 2. So um, hmm. it's too, although it's too soon to beat Superman to death in the saga, I think. But they are intending for that. <laughs> Unless you're the director. Um, As, yeah, right. <laughs> no. You leave that to the corporate IP owner exactly. to beat Superman to death. <laughs> the, um, I think I actually think Doomsday might be big enough for a whole Justice League movie. If it they, could be. If they don't want Which, to do Darkseid, they could they could easily do do kind of the extended uh, lore of Doomsday um, kind of thing. Which. I mean, in the original comics, all the Justice League was called in yep. and failed up against, you know, up against him. Um, and I still think, I, as much as it surprised me, and I don't, I, I still, I'm, I apologize, I can't remember, I think you probably gave up watching it by that time. When they brought Doomsday into Smallville, uh, he actually made a lot more sense on television than he ever did. They made comics. a smaller story of him, which I liked. Yeah, it, it was it was a more personal story, and there was you know the whole dual identity thing was kind of cool. Yeah, well, they made a human story out of it. You yeah, know? And, and 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 yet, yeah. So I, I wish they in all the rebooting, I wish they would have just done that with Doomsday, stolen it <laughs> outright yeah. from Smallville because it made more sense than the comic book did. Um, Nate, did you see? No, you didn't. Uh, so uh, the seventeen minutes of Guardians of the Galaxy. I did not. I was going to. I immediately signed up for a ticket because the way I found out was through Dave Tapia posting on Facebook and then tagging me. 
And the way he's put on the tag, he said, watch Guardians of the Galaxy a month early. And I was like, are you kidding me? I'm definitely going to go see that a month early. Signed up for the ticket and then read the description and was like, oh, you jerk. It's only 17 minutes. So then I was just upset and I said, well, I don't want to watch 17 minutes and then have to wait a whole month to see the film. So no, I did not go. Yes. Well, I thought it was positioned in a in a way to be a good short introduction to them. Um, yes, I was left de- demanding more, but I thought it, it the way the segment was edited was very well packaged in and of itself. And I'm just that's all I'll say. Um, but Rick and I were talking, and I think the thing is the only, the only, I will say nothing plot wise. I will only say that after seeing that 17 minutes, it's really clear that when Marvel decided to do Guardians of the Galaxy, they had no idea how good a film they were going to end up with. <laughs> awesome. Because if they had known, it would have opened the summer instead of closed it. You know, And I would bet that Guardians of the Galaxy 2 will be one that is like an April or May release instead. Uh, maybe June. Uh, because it's... You know that was people were just completely rocking after that. After that, and then uh, starting last weekend, um, Disneyland uh, put Guardians of the Galaxy in to where Captain EO was in Tomorrowland. So a different wow. segment of footage. I don't know what it is, but it's going to be presented with all the effects of what do they call that? Uh, is it 4D that they said over it when it was Captain EO or Honey? When I the shrunk, seats move and all that. Honey, I shrunk the eyes, and they do smoke effects and. <laughs> Yeah, they, they, the the seats are on a uh, number of platforms. For, yeah, for one thing, so they all they but move D- almost uh, like a mini Disney ride. Disney had a, you know, Great America did that with SpongeBob and called it 4D, and I think Disney had a different. They did it with different. Honey, I Shrunk the Audience. They did it with Bugs yeah. Life as well. Um, yeah, and the they, the yeah. seats would okay. spray things from the seat in front of you. Would spray stuff back. Right, and and Disney did that. Uh, they did 14 minutes of Maleficent in where it's tough to be a bug. So, you know, they use the effects of the seats there for, for Maleficent as well. So it's going to be a very in, a, a more interactive experience at Disneyland. Uh, it has been going for a few days, but I haven't heard anything about it just other than James Gunn posted a picture of putting the logo up. So, I mean, it's going to be, it's going to be huge. And thankfully, toys have finally made it to Toys R Us. They do and, call it 4D. Oh, uh, they do. Okay, yeah. So it's... Um, Something and they've got it at Disney World as well, but I'm not sure where they've placed it there because I don't know Disney World at all. Um, so, um, now last weekend, Fourth of July, Rick was off at WesterCon in. You made it back from Salt Lake City. Salt Lake so, City. Yes, and uh, so uh, you managed. To, you got an interview with uh, with William Stout, who as it was. Uh, movie poster artist and uh, concept artist for, for film and works in fantasy and science fiction art quite a bit. So you have uh, a bit of an interview with him. So shall we place that in now? We should put that in right about now. So I'm recording now. Um, so this is an impromptu interview at uh, WesterCon 67 in Salt Lake City. And I'm sitting here with William Stout. And he's graciously agreed to do a short interview with me. Sure, yeah. I'm happy to be here in Salt Lake City. I was born in Salt Lake City on the way to L.A. On the way to L.A.? <laughs> yeah. So it wasn't, so, it wasn't a planned... Uh, <laughs> it was, 
Well, the, the birth was planned, but uh, not the uh, geography. <laughs> so, aside from being having been noteworthy for being born in Salt Lake City, um, you are an accomplished and long long term artist uh, in. Uh, in the, in the field, can I can I sure. get a short history of your 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 art? Oh sure, I, I uh, became began supporting myself from my art in 1968 uh, when I became the cover artist and interior illustrator for a little pulp magazine called Coven 13. It was stories about vampires, werewolves, witchcraft, supernatural. Uh, I was an illustration major at CalArts, and they had a, a great policy in the illustration department, which was if you got any real work on the outside, you could turn that in in lieu of your homework. Oh. So by the last two years of art school, everything I was turning in was real jobs, so it made the transition from the academic world to the real world absolutely seamless. And I That's s- wonderful. I started gravitating towards doing uh, movie posters, and I worked on the ad campaigns for about 120 motion pictures. Uh, one of... The early posters I did is still one of uh, my fans' favorite works. It was the poster I did for the animated feature Wizards. Uh, But I also did posters for Monty Python and uh, for George Lucas. And then I fell into the film business itself and started making movies. And I've made about 45 feature films, starting with the Conan the Barbarian films, Raiders of the Lost Ark, First Blood, uh, Men in Black. uh, The work I did on Pan's Labyrinth... helped to secure two of its Oscars uh, for art direction and for uh, special makeup stuff. And But I also like to travel a lot, and, uh, and I have a huge passion for uh, doing accurate reconstructions of prehistoric life for natural history museums. So I've, I've painted uh, 21 murals so far. Uh, two at the Houston Museum of Natural Science, uh, three for Walt Disney's Animal Kingdom, uh, 12 for the San Diego Natural History Museum, and two recently for the San Diego Zoo. Uh, that's my favorite kind of work of everything I do. But I also so do, murals at the zoo. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. They have murals at the zoo. They built a new elephant exhibit at the zoo, and uh, so the two murals I painted uh, show San Diego back when it had elephants, when it had mammoths and mastodons and things, and about I included about 80 other creatures. And then the exact same scene today with the animals that are remaining, which is like uh, mountain lions and skunks and uh, coyotes and things like that. Not as impressive as mastodons, no. <laughs> but, but still. No, yeah. It's great. Yeah, or saber-toothed cats. And, yeah. Now, in the 60s, am I remembering correctly that you did, you did some work on underground comics? Yes. Uh, I was one of the first underground comic book artists. In 1967, I illustrated a comic book called Those Lovable Peace Nuts, which was a... a Visually, a takeoff on, on Peanuts, but it was an uh, anti-Vietnam War comic book. And uh, what was it like in those days? I mean, underground really was kind of, it, it wasn't really, physically underground, but it was really oh, it was, counterculture. And, uh, it was amazing. Uh, a friend of mine turned me on to the Zap comics that Robert Crumb and, and Rick Griffin and those other guys were producing. And in that day, to buy a Zap comic, I remember uh, there was a, a little kiosk in Westwood, California, and the guy had the underground comics in a cabinet, and you had to ask for them. But you had to ask for them when no one was around. He was real yeah. furtive about it. And if, if you try to ask when somebody was around, he, he would shush you and then wait, and then finally when people left, he, you couldn't even look at the comic. It was you like just, buying drugs. You just gave him the money, he gave you the comics, and <laughs> that was... And then you'd and never then, seen each other And then he said, before. get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was really sort of... Uh, 
Well, the genre back then was kind of divided between these kind of really fantastic people who were drawing surreal, almost, um, almost impressionist uh, comics, and then people like you and I'm thinking Rand Holmes mm-hmm. who were drawing much more realistic, uh, body modeled. Um, Comics. Did, yeah, we all you... we all had the same roots, which were the EC comics. So Harvey Kurtzman was considered the sort of godfather of the underground comics because Mad originally was a comic book for the first uh, I think uh, first twenty two issues, and it was very subversive, and uh, we all loved that spirit. But at the same time, EC was also producing those great science fiction and horror comics with illustrators like Wally Wood and. Graham Engels, and so those also uh, inspired us, and so we got we got a whole spectrum of, of subject matter and styles to to work from and, and to be inspired by, and that's what sort of uh, fed the undergrounds. Was was Wizards the first film that you worked on? I didn't actually work on the film; I just I mean, did the poster. Poster. Yeah. That was the. I, the very first movie ad I did was, uh, I think it was called Linda Lovelace Goes to Washington. Wow. <laughs> and it was, I was amazed because they paid me cash, which was highly unusual back then. And, and it was a lot of money for the time. Uh, I mean, it was, it was like, I think, five months rent. I couldn't believe it. That's uh, great. But it was, uh, they wanted a, a black and white illustration to go in the newspapers, and they wanted to, to look like the Herblock uh, political cartoons. And... Back in those days, I had a reputation for being able to duplicate any art style. And so a lot of my early work was just that, was duplicating different art styles. Well, that's, that's great work. I think my next poster, the actual next poster I worked on uh, was a film called Spies with Elliot Gould and Donald Sutherland. Mm-hmm. And the poster had actually been done. It was done by Rick Meyerowitz, the artist for the National Lampoon. But they, they didn't like his caricature of Elliot Gould, and they didn't like his caricature of the girl. And he refused to, to change it, so they sent it to Los Angeles, and I duplicated his style, but did better likenesses of those actors. So in uh, the uh, the poster, we were just looking at the laserdisc copy of right. Wizards just a second yes. ago, and, and there's the, two versions of that. The 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 cover, the the standard of Scout and uh, is it Scout Peace Peace. Right. And the and the animal he rides right. uh, is evocative of both Mike Plug and Bashy's uh, mm-hmm. own stuff. And were, was, so was that kind of an imitative thing for you? Well, it was a strange job. It came to me through an uh, advertising agency I'd been doing some work for. I hadn't, which uh, the work for them had nothing to do with films, and they just sort of plopped this job in my lap. I said, "Well, are you going to show me the film?" They said, "Oh, you'll do a better poster if you don't see the movie." I go, uh, "Really?" Hmm. Okay, well then, can you give me some photo reference? Because I, not having seen the movie, I don't know what's in it, what to draw or anything. And they gave me these really blurry, substandard photos. And I said, well, what, what am I supposed to do with this? They said, do the movie poster as if it was your own movie, which was best piece of advice they could have given me. So I just used those those blurry photos as a point of departure and just designed my own thing. Yeah, it's an iconic poster now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Terrific. Who knew? I, didn't, I actually didn't realize yeah. it myself. So... Um, Today, your, your your work now. You mentioned earlier when we were talking about Pan's Labyrinth, your right? Work, your work there, and how 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 did that? How did you how did you move into? Uh, oh, how did I move into the movie business yeah. itself? Uh, I was doing a lot of movie posters. I, I remember, I think it was August of nineteen seventy seven. 
or 78, actually, I remember I opened up the calendar section of Los Angeles Times, the movie section, and I had eight posters in that one oh, that one. Wow. Uh, I couldn't believe it. And so uh, a friend of mine, Bob Greenberg, was working as a production assistant on Conan the Barbarian. Uh, at that time, it was uh, being direct, written and directed by John Milius. Mm-hmm. And I was a huge Conan fan. I had read all the books and stuff. And I would, and he told me that Ron Cobb was the production designer, which just blew my mind because I knew Ron Cobb as a political cartoonist for the L.A. Free Press. And I thought, this, wait, this political cartoonist is designing Conan? This I've got to see. This is amazing. But I didn't have any time. I was so busy. Finally, I got a little break in my schedule, but instead of going over to the Conan offices, I went to the ABA, which was a, a national book fair with every publisher and editor in the country all in one spot. Great place for an illustrator to pick up work. And I walked in with my portfolio, and I ran into Ron Cobb. And Ron told me that I was his number one choice of who he wanted to work with on Conan, but that he had a, an agreement with John Millis, the director, that John had veto power over anyone Ron wanted to bring in. So he asked me if I would drop off my portfolio so John could see it. I said, sure, that sounds like fun. You know, it'd be interesting to see how, how movies are made. And so I went in the next day, and John happened to be there. And he looked through my portfolio, and he remembered a story I'd done for Heavy Metal that he really liked. And he just handed me back the book, and John's a very charismatic and dramatic guy. And as he was walking out the door, just over his shoulder, he yelled, hire him. Nice. So I walked into Buzz Feitchen. And you started walking a little further off the ground out the, out the door? <laughs> well, I walked into Buzz Feitchen's office. He was the line producer. And Buzz told me what I'd be making on Conan. And I nearly fell off the chair laughing because it was about 10% of what I was making in advertising. Uh, but I thought, well, it's only for two weeks. You know, it'll be just a fun learning experience. Well, the two weeks turned into two years, which turned into a film career. <laughs> And, and at the time, we were sharing offices with Steven Spielberg because John was producing 1941 for Steven. And so uh, Ron and I would work on Conan during the day, and at 6 o'clock we'd put our pencils down, run across the hall to Steven's office, and kick around ideas with Steven for his next picture, which was Raiders of the Lost Ark. I thought it was always going to be like that. <laughs> it was like, I mean, our, our receptionist when I started there was Kathleen Kennedy. And within two weeks, she was John Millis's personal assistant. And within two months after that, she was Steven Spielberg's personal assistant. And two years later, she produced E.T. It was the fastest rise I've ever seen wow. in the film business. It was wow. unbelievable. But I had a fast rise as well. I was initially hired to storyboard Conan. And uh, I, was, I spent basically two years in a room with Ron Cobb, and what Ron was doing looked even more fun than doing the storyboards. So Ron started to throw me the work that he didn't have time for, so I got to design costumes and creatures and sets and things. And uh, they, the Dino De Laurentiis family started grooming to be, me to be a, become a production designer, and within two years I was production designing my first film. And that was? Uh, that was uh, the first film was uh, Godzilla King of the Monsters. It was going to be an American Godzilla film shot in 3D. I, had, uh, I was boarding it, and I also hired uh, Dave Stevens and Doug Wilde to do storyboards. I hired Rick Baker to build a gigantic robotic Godzilla head. Dave Allen was going to do the stop-motion animation. Steve Cherkis uh, built the Godzilla armature from uh, my designs. But it was, it was the right project at the wrong time. It was obviously going to be a very expensive film and at that time four big budget films bombed including uh, Heaven's Gate so we couldn't get financing for the project the first film I actually production designed that made it to the screen was a zombie movie called Return of the Living Dead 
which has become this huge cult film. I mean, it's, it's more popular today than when it came out. It's unbelievable. In fact, I spent the last two years uh, touring with the cast at uh, all the horror movie conventions, right, promoting the film. Now, just to just to get your point of view on this as sure. as an artist and, and involvement, do you think that the current the most recent Godzilla representation was fat. Fat? Yeah, you look pretty fat in the photos. I haven't fat. seen the film yet. Okay, you haven't seen that. The, the, the Japanese particularly felt the Americans had fattened Godzilla, which is an ironic on so many levels. So. Now, you're also um, quite a music authority oh, aficionado. That, that's one of my big passions in my life. In the mid-1970s, I did a series of 45 bootleg record albums. In fact, in the UK, that's what I'm known for. They don't know me for the dinosaurs. They don't know me for the movies. They know me as the bootleg artist. Now, you got to explain, because a lot of the kids today don't understand bootleg records. It was a lot looser back in the mid-70s. You could go to concerts and bring your Sony tape recorder and tape the shows. And guys would do that, and then they'd come home, and they would press up oh, you know, 200 or 500 vinyl records of the show and sell them on the street. Right. And I remember I, I had been to, a, I was at a Led Zeppelin concert, and I saw people taping it, so I, I knew there was going to be a bootleg of it. I was real excited because it was a great show. And I checked the record store that, that sold the bootlegs every day, and finally the day it came in, and I was so disappointed because the cover was so crappy. It was just, it was horrible. And out loud I said, I wish someone would get me to do these covers. And a guy tapped me on the shoulder. He said, you want to do bootleg album covers? I said, yeah. He says, okay, be at Selma and Las Palmas, Friday night, 8 o'clock, be alone. Wow. Oh, okay. <laughs> so that's a real seedy part of Hollywood. And But I was there at 8 o'clock and this coupe, pulled up with smoked windows and one of the windows lowered a crack and this piece of paper came out of the car and I took it and it said Rolling Stones winter tour and there was a whole list of songs and they said see you in two weeks same time same place be alone I said okay so I, I went home did the cover and brought it back and uh, the coupe pulled up again and, I, and the window lowered and I, I put it in like the cover in like I was mailing an envelope at a mailbox and this $50 bill emerged. Man. <laughs> and I, I took it. Eventually, the, the first ATM. Yeah, yeah. Eventually, the bootleggers got comfortable with me and, and that I was not going to turn them into the FBI or anything. So I, we got to meet them face to face. The name of the company was called Trademark Quality. Because of that, I kept pushing them to do higher and higher quality products. The first bootleg covers were printed, they were all black and white, and they were printed on paper that was sandwiched in between the shrink wrap and the, the blank uh, album cover. Eventually, I got them to print the art directly on the covers, and then eventually I got them to do full-color covers. Uh, we did one uh, called Who's Zoo, which was a double album of, of Who rarities and outtakes and B-sides that had never been released on, on albums. And John Entwistle from The Who saw it and hadn't realized how much unreleased Who stuff there was, so he put together a legitimate version of it called Odds and Sods, and then contacted right. me asking me for permission to use my art for the picture on the CD. Very nice. <laughs> so Very nice. that was cool. And then we did, one of the last ones I did was uh, a Yardbirds album. And it was called More Golden Eggs. And I found out that Keith Relf, the lead singer of the Yardbirds, was living nearby at the time. 
So we contacted Keith, and in exchange for paying his rent that month, uh, he sat down and we taped a whole interview with him. We played the album and got his commentary on each of the tracks, and then I did a whole interview with him afterwards, and we included that as a five-page insert with the album. Wow. So that was super cool. I, I love the bootleg days. They, they were great. So talk about your, your Legends of the Blues. Well, my desert island music is the blues. That's my favorite genre of music. And uh, I think it was 2003, it was declared the year of the blues in the United States. And Shout Factory Records decided to put out a series of CDs which were best-off compilations of, of the great blues singers. And uh, for the cover art, they used Robert Crumb's uh, blues trading card images but there were a few people that Robert hadn't drawn and uh, they that's wanted where I was getting mixed up with yeah, yeah. And, they, and they wanted uh, still wanted to put out these, these CDs and so they came to me and said could you work in the same format as Robert and do Ma Rainey and, and Mississippi Fred McDowell and I said sure it sounded like fun well it was so fun I didn't want to stop and about that time, I had some surgery, and I can't, in my recovery time, I, I can't, I'm not the kind of guy who can just sit still and not do anything. So I made a list of everybody that Robert hadn't drawn, and then proceeded to draw them. And pretty soon, I had 50 portraits. And I was really happy that Robert hadn't drawn Robert Johnson, hadn't done the, the chess guys, Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, Willie Dixon, Little Walter, all those guys. And I thought, hey, I should put these out as, as trading cards, like Robert's cards. So I called up Dennis Kitchen, who's an old friend of mine and Robert's agent. And he said, Bill, do you ever notice anything about Robert's choices? I said, well, yeah, he did the really ancient guys. He goes, yep, public domain. He says, do you really want to have to go to each and every one of the people you've drawn or their estates and get their permission? And their, uh, I said, well, that sounds like a nightmare. I said, well, I, I guess I just did them for myself then. He says, have you thought about doing it as a book? I said, wouldn't I run into the same problem? He says, no, different rules for books. Books are considered a benefit to the public. Uh, and so we could do this as a book. And so I said, Dennis, be my agent, take it, sell the book. And so he sold it to the same publisher that published Robert's cards as a book, right. uh, Abrams. And then Abrams turned around and said, uh, could you make it 100 instead of 50? I said, happily, <laughs> gladly, please, don't twist my arm. This is great. So it's uh, the book consists of 100 portraits of my favorite blues musicians born prior to 1930. I wrote the bios on each person, including uh, recommended listening and interesting cover versions, so that people would know, oh, oh, this is the guy that wrote the songs that the Stones did, or the Yardbirds, or the Animals, or Man for Man. And then I produced a CD that's included in the back of the book. It's a 14-track selection of songs by a lot of the artists in the book. And so you got another volume coming out. I'm halfway through the second volume, which will be Legends of the British Blues. Uh, like most people of my race and generation, I was turned on to the blues by the British invasion, uh, by bands like the Rolling Stones, Man for Man, Yardbirds. And I was kind of a fanatic about finding out who wrote my favorite songs. And these same names kept cropping up. Dixon, 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 Barry, Barry, Dixon, Dixon, Barry. Who is this, this, this Barry guy and this Dixon guy who write in all these songs for the Beatles and the Stones and the Arbors? Well, it was Chuck Berry and Willie Dixon. And so they turned us on to our own music. Yeah. <laughs> 
they made it fresh for us, and uh, so it led me down this path of of discovery of all this incredible music. Uh, the third volume is going to be Modern Legends of the Blues, so that'll be uh, Jimi Hendrix, uh, Paul Butterfield, Mike Bloomfield, Jack White, uh, Taj Mahal, folks like that. And then if uh, the publisher's up for it, I, I want to do a book on my second favorite kind of music, which is soul music. So it'd be Legends of Soul, Aretha, James Brown. So total labor of love, these books. In fact, it put me in a great position with Abrams uh, because anytime they wanted to make a change in the book, I would say, well, I guess I'll just take the book somewhere else. And they go, oh, no, no, no. Okay, okay, never mind, never mind. <laughs> well, I've really enjoyed talking to you today. Oh, thanks. It's great. Are you enjoying you know, WesterCon? Oh, yeah, I'm having a great time because being born in Salt Lake City, I have a lot of family here. Yeah. And... Uh, I, last night, my, my cousin Jeannie came by, and I hadn't seen her since 1967. I, I, I gave her a photo of herself at that time because she and her parents uh, came to my high school graduation. And you, you, your son recently won an award? Oh, yes. Yeah, I have two sons. They're both computer scientists. It was funny because even though I have a studio, I deliberately worked at home so that they could see the process, that it wasn't just something that magically turned up at the end of the day. And because both of them showed enormous talent as artists, and it completely turned them off <laughs> to a career in art. And uh, they both became computer it's hard scientists. It's to follow in dad's steps, oh, too. Oh, man. And I told him, I said, look, you guys at your age draw so much better than I drew at your age. But they were like, ah, dad, we can't compete with you. So my youngest son, he works at Google, and he was just awarded the Hoff Award, which is named after David Hasselhoff. And it's an award they give for someone who's done substantial work at the company but has not received the credit they think they deserve. And they actually flew out David Hasselhoff to present him with the award. That's great. <laughs> it's just, that is it's such a funny company. It's, it's just amazing. Well, thanks again for talking to oh, us Oh, you're today. welcome. I really appreciate it. Good interview. Thanks. We should come back. <laughs> Excellent. Welcome back from Salt Lake City. And just a real a real time. pleasant guy and so much history there. Yeah. W- which you will hear <laughs> as I soon as you hear this podcast produced. I am a time traveler when we record the podcast. Uh, so let's turn to television and talk let's. about back to Comic Con, I think, to some extent, because we, we were uh, alerted that uh, Stephen Amell. Uh, who is who plays Oliver Queen, not yet the Green Arrow on the show Arrow, is hosting their Saturday night in Hall H, which is going to feature full-length uh, showings of the complete pilots of The Flash and Constantine, plus uh, preview footage from Arrow, and uh, they have some. They must have something else. Um, have they said are they doing that during the day, or are they going to do those nighttime showing things? No, it's eight o'clock at night. Oh, excellent! They're doing. 8 that means o'clock you might have a chance o'clock. of getting into it. Yeah, uh, and so line up big because the thing is, this. Is a, I mean, finally, I realized it, it's finally a big. Um, it's a it's a it's a showdown between Marvel and DC. So Marvel movies are going to have the slot in Hall H before that, and I think this is where the difference is. You know, as much as we held on to um, to Agents of Shield, and we saw it through good times and bad, and honestly, more bad than good until the end. And so, you know, Agents of Shield is almost like damaged goods. They've got their they've got a preview uh, uh, in. Uh, hall uh the ballroom 20 they're going to have a a panel for agents of shield and agent carter 
which is going to be great. I do think that the show's better. But DC right now, if you look at television, DC or Warner or Gotham, that's it. They're going to show footage from Gotham, uh, is just they're owning it. And so there's been some casting news, which is interesting because, again, it feels like, boy, uh, they're changing things. Is uh, Brandon Routh, who played Superman in Superman Returns, uh, has been cast as Ray Palmer on Arrow. So uh, we assume as the Atom. Uh, and I uh, and there's a snarky note from from Rick here, but I'm looking forward to the moment that he shrinks down and flies on one. Of I the arrows was not arrows. being snarky. I am predicting that's going to happen very early in the show. It's going to be fantastic. But I I think they're going to play it still Barry Allenish, and it may be a while before he actually becomes the Atom. So, but it's it's good to see Brandon Routh in there. It's just interesting. I I don't think how many other actors have had a chance. That's a good trivia question. How many other actors have played more than one superhero? Chris Evans. Captain America, Chris Evans. Yeah. Yeah. Ben Affleck is about to play two. Yeah. Oh, that's right. There we Daredevil go. Daredevil and the Batman. Yes. So it's a special club. It's a very special club. Kirk Allen goes back. Actually, Kirk Allen played both Superman and. Anybody know what the other one was? Halle Berry has the unfortunate. Uh, Storm and Catwoman, yes. <laughs> but the answer to the Kirk Allen one is Blackhawk. Oh, Blackhawk. Yeah, cool. Yeah, there's a Blackhawk serial, which I can't believe no one has ever collected officially. So, um, anyway, uh, so not only, though, is Brandon Routh playing Ray Palmer, they just announced today that Robbie Amell, Arrow's, uh, Stephen Amell's cousin, who was on The Tomorrow People, which I believe was canceled, is going to join the flat cast of The Flash as Ronnie Raymond, who is oh my. Firestorm. So, as uninterested as I feel like I am about the big screen, uh, I'm like, well, I don't need a Justice League movie with the heavy hitters. Go ahead and make a Justice League International with the between Arrow and The Flash. Uh, just let us see those kind of obs more obscure heroes become uh, major players on television. So, One, th one th more thing about Arrow. Uh, yeah. The Brandon Routh character is uh, is coming in. Uh, it, you, you've watched all the shows so far, right? You finished last season. I have not, but that's uh, okay. Well, as happened numbers of times in the comics, Queen Industries slipped out of the, out of the grasp of uh, Oliver and um, ended up in the hands of... Uh, one set of bad guys and then those bad guys went away but beginning in the next season um our 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 uh, pre-adam um addition to the show brandon ralph is going to be uh the guy who comes in to run queen industries and he has uh partially he gives him free and somewhat uh sequestered access to the labs at queen industry so that's kind of a precursor to him becoming the adam i guess Interesting, yeah, and, and I, but I had picked up that uh, the previous uh, from the end of the season that people believed it was actually going to be Ted Cord. So it's interesting that they threw you for a loop by by putting in Ray Palmer instead. Well, so, we, can always, we can always hope for Ted Cord too. <laughs> <laughs> I would like that. Certainly, they could treat Ted Cord better than they did on Smallville. So, um, and then another Comic Con thing is that. Uh, Rick, it, 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 what, what did they call it? Fantasy Con or Legend Con? It was Fantasy Con. It was the first Fantasy Con for Salt Lake. It's Salt Lake City Fantasy Con. It's what it, what it was. 
And it's okay. a, a group of people who had put on prior science fiction conventions, but this was definitely heavier on, on fantasy. But you can't keep people from showing up as other no, other types of uh, characters. Right, cosplay is beyond. Yeah, it, it knows no it knows no restrictions. And uh, but but there you ran into people from uh, a proposed web series, a proposed TV series called Nobility. They're still kind of in a, a pre kickstarter funding phase but i really liked most of the stuff i saw about it and what drew me in was big pictures of uh, everyone's favorite uh star trek uh navigator was he a navigator helmsman yes he was a navigator yeah uh walter, walter koenig, koenig yeah Chekhov. yeah so um it's a it's a set in the future i'm not going to do the rundown that they do for all their back history but leave it to say uh people of earth are now starfaring but they've got a pr problem so they invite uh on their on their big starship they invite a camera crew to come and live on the crew and and shoot day-to-day life on the ship so it's kind of like the office in outer space love it and I just I went, ah, uh, yeah, okay, let's watch. <laughs> it's, and they're gonna yeah, and they're gonna have a a, a panel at Comic Con, so we'll try to see if we can follow up on that. That's called it does no, sound interesting. No Also has Doug Jones, um, who is you know was uh, Abe Sapien and uh, uh, oh, doggone, uh, what else was Doug Jones in? Um, Wasn't he Silver Surfer? He was Silver Surfer, oh, and he was also yeah. in Pan's Labyrinth. And he, he was in love in the time of monsters. So, um, which, by the way, also just got um, distribution. So they're going to have a booth at Comic Con. So we knew them forward well. to catching up with those guys as well. So it does seem pretty interesting. Um, and then uh, this is a, a moment for, for Nate to get a snack, uh, although we're almost <laughs> done. Uh, that uh, last weekend, I guess it was, yeah. the BBC accidentally posted online. How many scripts? Four? Five? I thought it was five. Five of the first the five first five episodes of season eight of Doctor Who. And this is a series that has been so fantastically, notoriously tight lipped that to have a slip up like this was insane. And the BBC has been begging fans, please don't leak what you know. Yeah. So this wasn't a diversion. These were the actual scripts. So uh, Rick and I both have avoided any and all information. I don't even know the episode titles. Uh, I don't want to know. So please, uh, my note here is that if you are someone who got those scripts, shut up about it. All right? <laughs> just, just yeah, don't. Yeah, there's no point. Anybody who wants to can probably go and find these, seek them out. There's, there's got to be any number of ways to get them, but... If you if you have to do that for yourself, do it for yourself. Don't do it to other. Don't do it to other people. That's right. And yes, Stay so spoiler free. That's right. And you had some television news yourself, Nate. I do have a piece of news I just saw. I wish I had seen it last week because it's happening tonight. So if you're listening to the podcast, you're too late. Unless you can find it on demand or something, but Stan Lee is going to be on Hell's Kitchen tonight. Oh, good heavens! He's dining in Hell's Kitchen. Won't be the first time. <laughs> Will Daredevil be there? Oh, that would be nice. 
Ah, excellent. So, oh, by the way, this just in as well for television. Orphan Black has officially been renewed for season three. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, just such a amazingly terrific show. Have you have you caught up on it at all? No, 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 at all. Okay. So. Uh, again. Um, but I know it's look. It's almost as popular as Doctor Who at the BBC America booth. Yeah. Um, and all so. I, I you can lay it all squarely on the uh, I can't remember her name. It's she's got. Um, uh, Euro- Tatiana... Yeah, she's got a, a European, uh, very Slavic name. Uh, she is just an amazing actress to play multiple, multiple characters, all variations of one individual, but having conversations, interacting with them. I mean, you know, it's all done with blue screen and, and substitutes and stuff, but just mm-hmm. just a uh, tour de force for... Well, to, to create that many different characters who are still variations on the same genetic material, it's... Uh... You know that is uh, it's an impressive, uh, impressive acting job. Yep. So um, uh, lastly, on my list, anyway, ooh, was of ooh, I have one more the, TV. One more TV. Oh, you have more TV. I had one more TV, and this was uh, we've talked about uh, making this official, and I think we really should, uh, and we probably need like a, a song for it, so maybe we can throw it over to Nate. But we we've talked about doing a late to the party. Yeah. Bit where I actually. Yeah, wanted that to be a written piece, but yes, go ahead. Uh, this is this is definitely in that case. I wanted to watch it when it was originally out on FX. I only caught up on it after it was pretty much long gone. It was always fun watching the old commercials for the movies that were coming out at the time. But Fargo on the FX channel with Billy oh, Bob. Oh yeah, no, I've, I'm about halfway through that. Billy Bob Thornton and Martin Freeman and Colin Hanks, which I I guess is Tom Hanks's brother. Son. Son. Okay. He, he looks so much like him. Which... Tom Hanks is old. Yeah. Okay. Well, he doesn't look no, old. Tom Hanks. Yeah, from Tom Hanks' first marriage. Okay. Um. So you're, you're about halfway through it. I just finished it. Are you to the point where Key and Peele have shown up? Not yet, which is driving me nuts. They are They are just so – and that, this is, that was what reminded me of this when you said uh, America, Afro-American actors. And I'm going – I was thinking, you know – could no they couldn't play doc savage but um no keegan could you think so you you bulk him up okay i think i think he could okay i i I think i think uh i've got to watch him a little bit more in the regular show which i've only seen a couple of the of the the uh episodes but this show was just so amazingly shot i mean I i liked the movie the movie was good the movie stayed with me and but this one for for a a mini series of of uh of episodes uh just so wonderfully plotted and dramatic and characters in it that you even the bad characters you're enjoying watching you can't wait till the next time they show up on the screen um what a, and it's on demand right now and man what, no, it's a great it is a great series yep martin freeman's fantastic um and uh, Billy Bob Thornton is, is so good. It's just I'm afraid that might actually be the most, you know, that might be how he really is, like watching Tom Cruise in uh, Collateral. I'm sure, so, he's, I'm sure he's that way right up into the homicidal maniac part of it, you know, the, uh, the deadly killer wolf character. Sure, that's what you say. That's the last thing you say. Yeah. Oh, you're not really a homicide. That's it. And it's over. <laughs> it just goes black. Sound of gunshot. Uh, no, he wouldn't be so messy. Uh, so, anyway, oh, you haven't gotten the uh, elevator. Scene. J.K. Rowling 
did create a, a semi sequel to Harry Potter, a midquel really, because it takes place between uh, the Deathly Hallows and the, uh, or the the end of the Deathly Hallows and the seventeen year flash forward, uh, with a little short story updating everybody from the uh, Quidditch World Cup. Oh, but we we yes. do get some backstory on characters we didn't know anything about after the end of the main drama yeah. in the series. Although again, it's all being told by Rita Skeeter, so it's all it's, it's suspicious. Parodying uh, tabloid journalism. In the Quidditch World Cup, does Germany defeat Brazil by a score of seven to one? Uh, it's if the Golden Snitch was involved, probably like hundred and fifty to one. Yeah. <laughs> Or a Brazilian. Isn't that what the Golden Snitch was worth? Something like that. Yeah, like you catch that and you automatically win even if you're losing. Yep. Yeah. Yes. Anyway. More sports than that. In the world of wizarding. wizarding. So, uh, yeah, so it's nice to just go back. There's no surprise to me. I I, I think there's still – we're probably going to get a full Harry Potter as an adult novel somewhere down the road from her. I sure hope so. She loves the characters too much. And I mean, I know she's getting some some decent critical love for her for her other novels now, but she just likes them, you know. And I don't feel like it's that's hack work. She, one thing she got really good. One thing I can guarantee is that uh, when I'm in London later this year, we will be going on the Harry Potter tour. Yes. And I will bring back photographs and whatever else I can bring back. Do not, Rick, kidnap a British child. Right. <laughs> Just saying it right now. An, are you putting an age limit on that? Um, you're taking Debbie, so yes. No, I'm no no British no British whatsoever. Okay. No bringing back British people. Don't kidnap them, and no matter how charming you find their accents. But what if they have wizard powers? Well, you know, if they have wizard powers and you're able to kidnap them, they deserve it. Yeah, it's for <laughs> science, after all. Oh, science versus wizardry. All right. So if you are listening to us, yeah, you might be listening to us on iTunes where you can find us there. Subscribe. Please uh, rate us. Give us a review. Uh, and uh, tell your friends. You can listen to us on the Stitcher app. You can find us at www.fanboyplanet.com. And you can find the individual pages there for each podcast, each week's podcast, as well as on those pages you may find Amazon links to some of the things we've talked about, the items that we have discussed on this episode. Um, as always, I do insist, uh, please, if you can support a local business, and we'll include Barnes & Noble, uh, please go ahead and support your local brick-and-mortar store. If you can, if they do not have what you, what you want, but we do on our page, then go ahead, please, click on Amazon. Maybe you should just say click on Amazon because people just aren't ordering. And... Um, and it was it, it, we're doing this out of the goodness of our heart. So uh, if you'd like to donate to Fanboy Planet to kick in to help support some of the uh, fine programming of the, of National Public Nerd Radio, uh, here it is. Uh, you can find it on the pay, there's a little PayPal link, and we graciously accept your donations to help for pay for things like hosting. One little uh, tip on the, on the Amazon thing. If what? you're yeah, one little tip on helping us through Amazon is that if they are looking for something they can't find locally. Click on one of our links, get to Amazon, then browse to whatever you're going to buy there because the disc, the amount that we get kicked back still comes from that secondary 
purchase. Right, even and, if it's uh, but also link. on the support page, there is a link that just get, you can do a search box. I've, yep. I've put a search uh, a general generalized Amazon search box there as well. So if you have questions, comments, compliments, criticism, commentary, write in to editor at fanboyplanet.com. I am Derek McCaw, editor-in-chief of fanboyplanet.com. I'm Nate Costa, and if you're at Comic-Con, you can find me at the Walking Dead Escape on Friday night. That's right. We've got to set up a meetup, so we, we should do that. And lastly, but not leastly. And I'm Rick Brett Snyder, reminding you to use your use powers. Use your powers. Only, only for, for good. good. Thanks once again to the great Luke Ski for use of his music in this podcast. Visit Luke Ski at www.thegreatlukeski.com. The power of brains compels you. And lastly, but not leastly. And I'm Rick Brett Snyder, reminding you to use your powers, use your powers only, only for good. good. We need that a, was the worst one yet. We need a metronome or something. <laughs> well, it's hard when all three of us were in different time zones, right? We're all like minutes apart. Yeah, I think there may be a, a slight bit of delay on Skype, but I'm really not hearing it anywhere else other than we try and coordinate things. No, 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 that's just our slow mental processing. <laughs> good, good. <Okay. laughs> uh, that was awesome. Cool.